Roger Ebert, the Chicago Sun-Times, says the director of this movie attacks film noir with three of his most cherished tools, whimsy, spontaneity, and narrative perversity. Vincent Candy of the New York Times says that he attempts the impossible and pulls it off. And Letterboxd user Fran Hoffner says, I want Elliot Gould to breathe on my face. On this episode of Ruined Childhoods, we determine the fate of the long goodbye. Which one will it be? Greetings, Starfighters. It's Ruined Childhood's time. Hi, John. Hey, Dan. How you doing? Why, on the edge of sanity, as I sound. Yeah, that's... Okay, before we recorded, there was a little bit of off-mic chatter about... Uh, okay, we are living in coronavirus times. You know, everybody's going a little bit hot right now, especially when you have little kids. So things can get a little tricky when you're in a home with the same people 24-7. And one of them is six. Breaks. And one of them is six. Yes. Yes. For um, sure. Yeah. No, no, no. And I totally wasn't going to bring any any of the domestic drama up. But of course, as I... as I Speaking of <laughs> domestic drama, the long goodbye. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, that came way too soon. That came way too soon. <laughs> And and perhaps not what I would consider domestic drama. The ice storm, on the other hand. Why wouldn't it be domestic drama? Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's the genre there I are, would... No, there is domestic no, drama not, in I'm, it. That's what I mean. Okay. I don't mean genre-wise. Uh, okay. I got mean... It. Got it. Things anyway, are amiss in Malibu. We'll come back to that. As they are in Seattle. Um, <laughs> thankfully, not nearly as amiss as they are in Malibu. But... Um, so no, I just, I, I heard my voice as I was saying, cause, cause look, when John and I do this, we don't, there are no second takes. This is it. You're, you're hearing it as we're doing it. And I heard my voice and I was like, it, it, I was like, in my mind, I'm like, you are trying so hard to counterbalance the madness right <laughs> that is in your mind well, right now okay well then how about this let's do a little diversion and maybe that'll help uh, put your mind at ease uh, so you just mentioned that we don't do second takes and on the note of second takes i want to do a one more thing for seconds two episodes ago so okay and this is kind of a one more thing from your one more thing from the last episode in which you were talking about Alex Garland yes. as being a, a a really great option for a director, an auteur to bring seconds back, and I don't think that I really gave it gave that response the appreciation that it deserves. And I don't know if I was just like thinking of where what I was going to be talking about next but like you said it and I just moved to the next thing and I want to just come back to it because it is a great suggestion 
And I want right, to acknowledge. Thank you, so, John. Of course. Um, you know, cause I, I thought, thought nothing of it, but I th- oh, no, I was just thinking about it more and more. And you're totally right. I, I mean, Alex Garland for anybody, uh, Alex Garland has been around for quite a while. Um, wrote 28 days later. Yeah. And, and I think was even active before then too, but directed Ex Mahina and Annihilation. And recently, as you mentioned on the last episode, was involved with devs. And yeah, for somebody to take the reins on something like the movie Seconds, the a 2020, uh, as we are recording this in 2020, a a modern day approach to it would be very appropriate for Alex Garland. Just thinking about, you know, the, the worlds that Alex Garland creates, uh, the structures, the, just the visual landscapes, I I think really could give a lot of um, weight to uh, a seconds second. Anyway, just a few seconds for a second take on seconds. Yeah. I do have a few more things about Major League. Oh, awesome. Hit, go ahead. Okay. This first one, I Dan, I did tell you I, over text, but to go back to something that we had talked about on the last episode, Hot Topic first opened its doors <laughs> six months after the release of Major League. So in case we... And- <laughs> Anybody was wondering for a, wanting a follow up on that. The store hot topic did not exist at the release of Major League, but did six months later. So Major League Two, yes. And it's funny, John, because you, you mentioned that, and I was at, when I was I was listened to the episode, and I was thinking about it, and I was like, oh shit, did I mean to say Spencer's? And, it's more appropriate to hot topic, but hot topic, yeah. yeah Spencer's yeah. gifts might have been probably is more likely to have been around in eighty nine. Because I felt like I, I I had a moment in my when we were having that conversation, and I had the I think the visual in my head was Spencer's, but the 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 item is much more appropriate to hot topic. So you were picturing the this item next to like. A mug, uh, making a joke about someone being over the hill, and then also over, a fart machine. Yeah, yeah. There's a like there's a fart machine. Wine. Um, yeah. There's a there's a big poster of. Oh, you know what's in there? My the the poster I used to have in my room with this is your the brain on drugs and the different right. eggs. Right there, you go. It's yeah. it's right in there. Um, you know, there's a over the top movie poster. I don't. Yeah. So <laughs> speaking about things that opened uh, after Major League. One thing that closed after Major League was the Corvette Museum in Cooperstown, New York that we talked about. I looked it up. It no longer is there. There's one, there is a Corvette Museum somewhere else, but I was reading some like reviews from the Corvette Museum and uh, not as nice as I remember it being. Everyone's like, the cars there are like dusty and weird. And yeah, uh, it, that disappeared years ago. So <laughs> the luster has has long worn so. off the Corvette Museum. Yeah, didn't get it. Get, didn't get such a nice patina as one might imagine. 
So that's where we are oh, with uh, with Major League. Do you have, did you have anything that you wanted to add to Major League? I know that those aren't things that have anything to do with what we talk about on this podcast, which is movie remakes, reboots, reboots sequels, prequels, sequels. Um, no, other than uh, I keep, <laughs> I can't. It's one of those things that I can't think about it without laughing. The Mr. Belvedere story. <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> the song that you put at the end. Well, okay. There were so many different. So, talked about this in the last episode. If you worth repeating, if you get fed up listening to an episode of our show, at least skip to the very end because I like to put in some sort of song or something uh, that relates to the movie that we talk about. And on the last episode, as uh, we're we're talking about Major League and (laughs) Cleveland, it's kind of like a character in the movie, you know. Anyway, that's a, <laughs> just making fun of people who say that. So Cleveland yeah. is a definitely a big part of it. So I love the 30 Rock song about fleeing to the Cleave and how like glamorous and perfect Cleveland is. Right, right. I mean, clearly you could do Cleveland Rocks. There's, I mean, you could oh, do Oh, I meant the Mr. Belvedere's, there, there was the Mr. Belvedere's Balls song. Yeah, so I was just searching YouTube to find out if there was anything about Mr. Belvedere sitting on his balls so I could yes. send it to you. And I found that song and I was like, oh, well, hello. This is perfect. I I did. I searched for the same thing. And the closest thing I could find was Artie Lang and Norm MacDonald telling like Bob Uecker stories. Oh, really? Oh, that's Which fun. was really fun. Well, because I guess that's how the story got out was Bob Uecker told. I, I don't really? know. He's like Norm MacDonald. Uh I want to say it. I first heard it because of um, the comedian Doug Benson, who mm-hmm. at the time his roommate was like on Mr. Belvedere, like a regular on Mr. Belvedere. And okay. it was a firsthand story being told to him. So <laughs> I, I guess you could just say widely wow. confirmed. Yes. Yes. Well, one but would imagine story. they both would have been there. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I'm just imagine, and by the way, for those of you, it, it, for anyone who who isn't quite familiar with Mr. Belvedere, who doesn't, or the actor Christopher Hewitt, if you've seen the original film version of The Producers, well, it was the original The Producers, 1968, right. Mel Brooks, Christopher Hewitt played the director, yes. the drag queen director. That's of, such a wild movie. Of Springtime for Hitler. Um, I, you know, I, I wonder if beyond what we're doing right now, we'll ever really talk about certain Mel Brooks movies. I, and I think that that might be more of a personal thing just because, like we say, we are poking fun at people who say that like, oh, that'll ruin my childhood. But it's like right. a Mel Brooks one, like that's a that that would be a tough one for me. Well, be, but also... Like I would suggest that most Mel Brooks movies, and I say most because To Be or Not To Be is a remake. <laughs> well, yeah, that's fair. Um, but most of his films but are no one's, very... No one's saying To Be or Not To Be as like, oh, you know what Mel Brooks movies well, I love? To Be or Not To Be. Like, that's right, no, it's never... Right, no. But I can't imagine someone other than Mel Brooks mm-hmm. making 
you know, doing, I mean, what are you going to do? You're going to remake Robin Hood Men in Tights. That's why they're all going to Broadway because right. there's nothing else you can do with them. Yeah. That's why, like, the <laughs> producer is Young Frankenstein. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Robin Hood Men in Tights ended up on Love Broadway. Men in Tights. Like, it's already got, like, a couple of musical numbers, so. That's right. You know, you throw in some more. And, I mean, the producers was very successful as a musical, as was Young Frankenstein. And, you know, I'm surprised Blazing Saddles, the musical, hasn't happened. Sure. I mean, that would be, that's like, that's, I think that might be my favorite Mel Brooks movie. I mean, oh, if we're talking favorite Mel Brooks movies, I, I, it would be hard for me to say, oh, I think that right at the top would have to be uh, Young Frankenstein and Spaceballs. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, I, I think that if I were a few years older, mm-hmm. it might be a little different. But I think that Spaceballs being such a big presence in my childhood oh, yeah. really put its place in my heart early on. Oh, that doesn't, I mean, doesn't surprise me. And Spaceballs, honestly, is probably at my number two for overall favorite because with a lot of Mel Brooks movies, I find that I really love scenes. Like there are parts of History of the World Part One that uh-huh. are funnier than anything in any other Mel Brooks movie. But the that movie, you know, some se- segments tend to drag and uh, we'll cut this one short. I don't want this segment to drag. But Blazing Saddles for me is the one that just, I am constantly laughing through Blazing Saddles uh-huh. and I am constantly just, the performances in it are just so incredible from Madeline Kahn and Harvey Korman. Of course, Gene Wilder, Cleavon Little, all of the, the townspeople, uh, John Hillerman. Uh, it's hilarious. It's, and, it's, it's a yeah. great movie. So, so uh, but yeah, I don't know if we'll ever end up... Uh, focusing on anything Mel Brooks in, in an episode and yeah, quite honest don't. Oh yeah. The producers, Christopher Hewitt, Mr. Belvedere. Yeah. <laughs> that's where, that's where this came from. Yeah. Sorry. I got to paraphrase or to quote frozen Two: lost in the woods. Oh yeah. There. Uh, oh, did you great. also watch that in the past few days? No, I, <laughs> no, I, I, I don't know. Chloe, you know, my, my six year old, she, you know, we saw frozen Two. She's like, yeah, it was okay. <laughs> She's like, it's not great. Let's listen to the music all the time. But yeah. that's that's more, she's more of like a, a highlights. Like she's the type of, she's going to be the type of kid. She's going to be the, even even the type of adult who gets mostly greatest hits albums. Although who's getting albums anymore? What are yeah. we doing? Uh, she's just going to about? select the essentials playlist on yes. Spotify or Apple Music. Yeah. Yeah. You know, she's just going to the, you know, best of 50 best of whatever. So anyway, speaking of music, speaking of music, um, speaking of music and songs that you may or may not use for the episode, hmm, I wonder what you might use for the long goodbye. Is there a oh. song that pops up in that movie? You know, you might be <laughs> surprised. I'm going to try my hardest to be clever with it. But yeah, I, I mean, what Dan is joking about is that there really is one song and it's just kind of done in different variations throughout the movie. It's such an interesting choice. And we'll talk, we'll talk a little bit more it, about that, but I didn't know John, if you had anything else to add, but I figured, Oh no, we can let's, uh, definitely get into the long goodbye. 
if you're say ready. hello to the long goodbye. Okay. Such an interesting movie. It's really fascinating. It was my first time seeing it. I think I saw that it had come on Netflix and I was like, I've been wanting to watch it. I, I, I don't know. I feel like there's a certain part of me that's been missing out on certain Altman movies, uh, Elliot Gould history that I feel like I need to just fill those gaps in a little bit. Seriously. Um, I know. Um, no, I'm with you, John. In fact, it's uh, funny. I want to say two summers ago, I actually, I kind of tried to do a little like Robert Altman catch up. Huh. Like I'd never seen all of Nashville. So I just like, right. I remember um, talking with you during that. Yeah. And never, it's like never streaming on anything. So I like bought it and watched it. Cause I, cause I'm like, I think I'm going to love this movie and I'm going to want to see it again, which, you know, I, I did. Um, but McCabe and Mrs. Miller was one of them that I took another look at and um, sorry, took a look at for the first time. And the long goodbye was kind of on that list, but didn't quite make it. And among the Robert Altman films that I, that I hadn't still seen, it was probably at the top of, of my to-do list. Well, I, I don't know. I feel like nowadays when people see Elliot Gould and things, it's like the, the quirky, nebbishy jewish guy it's the, oceans the of his man. character in oceans 11 right totally which he's great in but he has nobody this, thinks sex symbol right right and even his character philip Marlowe in the long goodbye is would not be a conventional sex symbol but it's the leading role and he's got this like crazy charm to him that's you just can't stop watching him even though he is just this like, I don't know, brooding, tired looking guy. Well, John, the 70s were a great time to be a character actor. By the way, speaking of character actors, we got poor one out for Brian Dennehy. Oh, my God. Right now. I, ne- I know that to um, mention when we did our Cocoon episode, I made a comment about how in my mind he had he I felt like he had passed away. And I think that it was just because of Tommy boy that put that in my head that Brian Dennehy is no longer with us, but uh, he was up until the other day. And when I saw that news, I was just like, no, <laughs> like I just found out you were still alive recently and now taken uh. by Brian Dennehy, such a, an amazing talent. And you, you know, not uh, a coronavirus related death. No, and, no. um, just but, super sad um, news. But anyway, speaking of, and I always think of Brian Dennehy in terms of the Patton Oswalt uh, story from uh, one of his albums where he talks about, you know, Brian Dennehy kind of comforting him about character actors being able to eat all the good food at a oh, buffet. Oh, yeah. Right, because Brian Dennehy played his Papa Rat. Yeah, Papa Rat <laughs> in Ratatouille. Yeah. So have you seen that recently, John? I have, as a matter <laughs> yeah. of fact. So Brian Dennehy abounds. Um, yeah, I didn't have the any- heart to tell my daughter, like, by the way, Remy's dad, the guy who did his voice, I didn't, she wouldn't understand. Maggie, let me tell you about Brian Dennehy. No, um, <laughs> but character actors in the, ni- like, in the 1970s, you could be a character actor and be a sex symbol. Dustin Hoffman. Right, yeah. Like, I mean, if you look at the number of 
uh, actors who came up in the 70s who were not traditional, you know, sex. Al Pacino. Yeah. Like these were not traditional sex symbols. And yet because of this charisma of Gene Hackman, another one, because of this, they all like all looked in their like, you know, early 40s for a long time. And but it's that that charisma. And I think it was like this toughness and that they represented that you know, kind of like the renegade spirit of the filmmaking in that era. Sure. Yeah. It was well, sexy. I, I, okay. Not going to launch into a whole huge thing about how that all has changed and where things are now. But, you know, I know that a lot of decisions about casting for like TV shows and stuff are made based on like social media followership. And it's kind of a sad state of affairs, but it's, you know, a money-making plan. And you need to be hiring people who are generating buzz online. And, hey, 1973, when this came out, that wasn't even close to being a thing. It, you know, uh, but if it was, Elliot Gould would have had so many followers. Sure. Uh, you, would, you, would hope, you would hope so. Uh, I would hope no, so. No, but, uh, you know, Robert Altman had the opportunity to direct this movie. He had worked with Elliot Gould on MASH and Elliot Gould did not have a good reputation at this point. He kind of had a bit of a lull. People didn't like working with him, but Altman liked him and, and brought him back. I think it, I think it might've had something to do. I remember hearing a story about how, like, I, I, I feel like with MASH, there was like some shit talking about MASH or something that like Donald Sutherland was doing on press tours, but Elliot Gould was kind of standing up for the film. Mm. So that's another thing. So I I went down a few wormholes not too long ago about like old, like Dick Cavett interviews and things like that. And people used to talk a lot of shit about like stuff on their press tours. It's amazing. Oh yeah. Well, because everyone's tiptoeing around things and they have to spin it. They have their PR person that's like, no, 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 mm-hmm. no, no. You got to say this. You got to say this. You got to say this. But then it was just like Donald Sutherland running his mouth. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, yeah, no, because like, I mean, you know, it was it, it was cool to to break the rules. Well, well, also, it's like if you've made a TV appearance at the time. It happened and then it was done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True. You miss it. But yeah, no. you miss it. I mean, yeah, and I, I mean, I don't know, but you know, a lot of those guys were totally sloshed on those shows. Oh my god, totally. So uh, I'm going to launch into a synopsis of the long goodbye, and then we'll talk a little bit more about the Philip Marlowe character, like where. He comes from. Uh, we'll talk about the the movie itself, uh, the the legacy of, of Philip Marlowe because it is very rich and um, pretty fascinating. The more I dug into it, the more I wanted to just learn more and more and more. So, the long goodbye. Elliot, the Jewish Clydesdale Gould, stars as Philip Marlowe, a brooding private eye who loves two things more than justice, and that's his tie and his cat. We meet Marlowe while he's on an endless quest for the bougie cat food his feline friend can't live without. 
Having failed in that conquest, he's tasked with a personal favor. His best bud, Terry Lennox, just got into a big fight with his wife and needs a ride to Mexico, and he needs it fast. That all seems good and fine until Marlo gets back to L.A. and finds out that Lennox is wanted for murdering his wife and Marlo gets arrested for conspiring with Lennox, seeing as how he acted as his getaway driver. After Lennox turns up dead, Marlo is let out of jail and manages to line up a P.I. gig. Eileen Wade, the wife of famous writer Roger Wade, needs Marlo to track down her alcoholic husband. The Wades and the Lennoxes live in the same Malibu community, so Eileen knew that Marlo was the man for the job after reading about him in the paper. This connection gets Marlo's gears turning and begins to form new theories about the deceased Sylvia Lennox. Complications grow when Marlo is confronted by mobster Marty Augustine and his goons when it's discovered that Terry vanished with over $300,000 of Augustine's money and they think Marlo knows where it is. With a few trips to Mexico... The camaraderie of his topless neighbors and his lucky tie, Marlowe puts the pieces together and brings justice to Los Angeles and the quiet Malibu community that was, for a brief period of time, fraught with controversy. So that's just my brief synopsis. As always, there's so much more that happens. <laughs> uh, and this is a very, this is a complicated story because there's a lot of deception. There's, uh, you know, a lot of pieces in place. Um, uh, Dan, how much do you want me to talk about the ending of this movie? Because something that I find fascinating about the ending of this movie is that the theatrical like trailer for this pretty much gives everything away. Like the poster even gives some things away. I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I didn't watch the theatrical trailer and I the poster that I saw just has him walking like in front of the ocean. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, then, then I saw a different one. Um, well, the, I mean the the trailer, which trailers at the time were very, very different. But yes, it um, they were better. It's it pretty much shows in almost its entirety. Marlo chasing after Eileen as she's driving away. You know, when she's in the car and he's chasing her, and it's like, yeah, uh, I get that when you're cutting a trailer you want to get the most exciting looking things and philip marlowe is not a man of action in the sense that he is not the most active person and that is a very active scene where he's running uh he's kind of more of a sloshy lumbering type well and and we see what happens when he tries to do that (laughs) well doesn't doesn't end up it doesn't end well. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, and and I think that's why. I mean, yes, we can talk about the ending, and and it. I, I don't know. If, it doesn't sound like the trailer kind of gives. There was something that I found very surprising and shocking about the ending. What's that? Oh, oh and, okay. I'll, I'll just I'll just say. So he learns by he goes to Mexico and pays off a few of the people that uh, had originally told him that Lennox had killed himself, and the coroner confirmed it. Uh, they faked his death and uh, Lennox was just kind of hidden away in a bungalow. He did kill his wife and he was with Eileen. So, yeah. And and there was a whole uh, thing going on, uh, this whole deception where Eileen essentially told Marlo that her husband, Roger, uh, who kills himself by walking into the ocean, um, 
that he was having an affair with Sylvia Lennox and that she thinks that he killed her. So that was just a way to kind of- It was a red herring. Push him in the direction. Yeah, the red herring, yeah. So, okay, so Dan, what, what were you gonna say? When Marlo just shoots Lennox. Right. Throughout watching this movie, and I felt that it's a very atypical Altman film. Okay. So, and even though this was early on in his in his career, I felt that it was, of all the films I've seen of his, it was the most focused on one central character, Marla. Yeah. yeah. And That's whereas true. you have, like, it's got the DNA of Altman. It's got the his camera movements. It's always moving. Yeah, the camera is always moving. And when you're seeing, you know, you're hearing one conversation, but you're seeing another one that's taking place, but not as, not really with the overlapping Yeah, dialogue. I feel like, I mean, one of Altman's big trademarks is people talking over each other. Like it feels like very real, like you're actually looking in a, a of something that's going on. It doesn't feel like it's a movie as much because there's chaos. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's very, so it's very, it's interesting in terms of how Altman approaches it. And I, I just kept wondering, I was like, Altman, and I watched the the great documentary about Robert Altman and it didn't focus too much on the long goodbye, but I kept thinking, you know, he, he's got to have a purpose. There's something, there's got to be a reason why he's taking a, a, a early 1950s, detective story and moving it to 1970s, early 1970s Los Angeles and throwing in the things like the topless, the neighbors who do yoga and are constantly topless. Like is he, I feel like he's saying something in it. He's saying something, maybe it's about Los Angeles (laughs) Yeah. Maybe it's about right. film. Maybe it's because you're watching it the whole time. And especially if you're watching it in 1973, you're, you know, you've probably seen, you know, uh, The Big Sleep or Fair, Farewell, My Lovely. Um, and, you know, the, things like The Maltese Falcon. And you have an expectation of that genre. Right. And now all of a sudden it's like, I'm being told this is Philip Marlowe and this is a Philip Marlowe story right. that I'm familiar with, but this is not, that's not like Philip, what Humphrey Bogart. Is that who played yeah. him, Humphrey Bogart? Well, so th- there have been a lot of Philip Marlowe um, TV shows, movies, made for TV movies. Uh, yes. Bogart played him in the big sleep and uh, we have Robert Montgomery, George Montgomery, uh, James Garner, uh, Robert Mitchum. Powers Booth was uh, oh, yeah. Marlowe in the HBO TV series. Danny Glover played Philip Marlowe. James Caan was Marlowe in, in an HBO movie. So there's there's so many more. Yeah, but yes, I think Bogart is <laughs> the I think the uh, the one that most people would probably think of. Right, right, and. Especially in because I feel I think the Mitchum ones were I forget when uh, when the, those actually might have been before the Long Goodbye, but he's by casting Elliot um, Gould. Farewell, my lovely was seventy five. 
Oh, okay. So, so after, right after. Right. So right after. And then uh, there was the other, the the big sleep in 78. Okay. All right. So they did. I wasn't sure if those were in the fifties or this. And so, okay. So those were after. So, but Elliot Gould stands out. So the casting of Elliot Gould, the setting in um, 1970s Los Angeles, they used like Marty. I mean, I, I have not read the, the novel, but Marty Augustine does not seem like a character from a 1951 no, mystery no. novel. Oh, by the way, um, Earl, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yep. Arnold. I mean, aside he from pops up in this. pumping iron, is that maybe his first on-screen uh, um, performance? You know, let me... I don't even know when Pumping Iron was. But uh, yeah, Arnold is one of his henchmen who has no lines. He's just the muscle. And you can't take your eyes off of him, especially knowing that it's Arnold Schwarzenegger. You're just like, oh my God, it's Arnold Schwarzenegger, but like not as a mega huge celebrity, which is a fun thing to watch. He's just chilling. Hercules in New York was before this. Oh, really? was 1970 yeah but this was his second this was his second movie and this was before because he did stay hungry after this Hmm. which i think he got a golden globe nomination for stay hungry oh yeah for best best uh like best newcomer something like that um but anyway yeah so it was cool seeing arnold uh but like i'm saying what's altman up to here oh and question for you who is roger wade supposed to be because i look at him i see Hemingway. Yeah, I was thinking he is very Hemingway-y. I'm wondering I, if that's I, how he was written originally in the novel. That's what I'm I'm wondering if it was kind of like a call out at Hemingway or could be. Um so j- one thing I want to do is uh just read a quick little synopsis of the book The Long Goodbye because one thing that people didn't love about the film is that it does stray wildly from the source material. Um, And this is from uh, a synopsis from The Guardian. Uh, A drinking buddy of Marlowe's, Terry Lennox, heads off to Mexico, leaving behind his dead wife, Sylvia, and then apparently commits suicide. While attempting to rebut police assumptions that Lennox murdered Sylvia, Marlowe is hired by Eileen Wade to locate her alcoholic novelist husband, Roger Wade. But Roger is soon found dead... And shortly afterwards, Eileen turns up dead too. She confesses in a note to the murder of Sylvia Lennox out of fury over Sylvia's affair with her husband and the subsequent murder of Roger. Marlowe discovers that Eileen was also married to Terry Lennox before the war. Though the case is over, Lennox rematerializes in Marlowe's office, his appearance surgically remodeled. He's been seconded. Ooh. Ooh, interesting. Wow. No kidding. The part about him being seconds was not in the Guardian synopsis, just so in case anyone's wondering. <laughs> in the in the middle of it, ooh, he's been seconds. Ooh, he's been seconds. You all know what that means, right? Yes. So, uh, it's like John Frankenheimer bursts into the room. You've been seconds. Yeah. So it's interesting, and I, it's, it seems like Altman made the right decisions to make it a more compelling story, a more layered story. I mean, I think that it's interesting and also it makes, it helps it make more sense to be taking place in the seventies. I don't know. It just works a little bit better that way. I think also it's like when 
people are making adaptations now from material that's from a different era. They're trying to say, like, I mean, like, like you're saying, like people are trying to say something different or trying to engage in a more current audience. And I think that that probably has something to do with it too. I mean, it's, I don't think that this movie was a huge box office success, but I think that there had to have been some sort of impetus to generate, I don't know, a, a younger audience for a noir film. Because of course, in like the forties and fifties, that, that was a big thing, but mm-hmm. it can get a little tiresome if you're doing the same thing over and over again in the same era. Similarly right. also to like, you know, go 10 years into the future with like a noir film like Blade Runner where you're uh, kicking it into the future. Yeah, yeah. Go tw- go 25 to a very similar movie to this, uh, The Big Lebowski, which I feel the, the Big Lebowski, after, after I watched this, I was like, I saw, now I see where they got a lot of inspiration for The Big Lebowski. Yeah, and I did read that, that um, they were inspired by Gould's performance as uh, Marlowe for The Dude. It's very, I mean, he wakes up and it's kind of a trope of the detective genre. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's like the beginning of The Last Boy Scout. You know, he wakes up in his car and that, and then here Ellie Gould just wakes up in his like shithole apartment and, you know, doesn't have cat food. And he's just, yeah, like you said, he's wandering yeah. around looking for cat food. By the way, speaking of the cat food, I just want to call out the um, the character, the grocery store clerk, who's just like, Cat food's cat food, man. Who gives a shit? And then yeah. he runs into him later in jail. Yes. <laughs> and he's like, hey, did you oh, get your cat I, food? That was just such a nice that. moment. That felt so good. <laughs> just, I don't know. I, I feel like a lot, I don't know if that is supposed to like make some sort of statement or if it's just a human moment, like a a very real kind of like, coincidences can happen and mean nothing in movies too. And it's just like a fun moment where you make a connection. Like it just draws you into Marlo's character where like you get excited that he is excited that he recognizes some guy and they have this funny interaction. Oh yeah. Well, and I because, like that a lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, cause the grocery, first of all, the people in the grocery store know him. Right. They yeah. seem to be like, Marlowe doesn't seem to have a lot of connections. Even his like his relationship with Lennox isn't like they no. don't hang out all the time, but it's, it's like, he doesn't seem to really have friends. And no, he's, he's, he's tight with his neighbors. Yeah. You know, the, the uh, topless yoga enthusiasts, whatever is going on with them. Uh, very respectful of them, by the way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he loves his cat. He's very concerned about his cat who has gone missing uh, after the cat doesn't get the bougie cat food that they love. Uh, he has, what do you think the deal was with his tie? He always wanted to make sure that his tie was on. At the beginning of the movie, he puts it on. What do you suppose um, the, con- the connection is with that? Uh, uh, honestly, I think it has a lot to do with the gen- your generational differences. You're taking a mm. genre... You are taking a character that is like beloved of the more conservative generation, the older generation, mm-hmm. your, you know, whatever, your greatest generation, pre-boomers. Um, and then you have... Pre-boomers. Well, 
Well, yeah, because you have your your boomers who are essentially, you know, your audience, your, you know, 20 to 30 year olds, your audience for this film in yeah. the early 70s, who at this point, you know, are, you know, they're the hippies. It's the, you know, counterculture. Yeah. And I feel like that's part of what Altman is trying to do by kind of bridging that gap and saying like, hey, look, this character, this Philip Marlowe, like Humphrey Bogart, who you all like. More like Dumphrey Bogart. He's a mess. Yeah. It, so, but it's like, hey, honestly, if this, like in real life, this guy would be like you. This guy would be like that that neighbor that lives over there in that other apartment. He's got a cat and he's kind of a slob, but he's And chill. he can light a match on anything. Oh yes, he lights a match on. He lights a match on the glass when he walks into the grocery store. How great is that? That was amazing. Yeah, he's this chain smoker. Uh, oh yeah, Roger calls him the Marlboro Man. Yeah, yeah. It's he's yo man, and Sterling Hayden. Wow. Ooh, um, yes. But, and you talk about taking someone who's. Uh, you know, I would say probably more affiliated with a with that older generation. You think, who, by the way, Sterling Hayden, as I read in the IMDb trivia, was apparently so drunk and high yeah. throughout the filming of this that he just like made up his lines. Which I, I think so. Makes a lot of sense when you watch it. <laughs> it's, but it's, it, I think the casting has so much to do with the. Uh, with what Altman is trying to do or trying to say with this uh-huh. movie. I'm not, I'm not a hundred percent sure what exactly that is, but uh-huh. it feels very, everything feels very intentional. Absolutely. I, I mean, one thing that we haven't talked about yet is, you know, Wade is this alcoholic. Marlo finds him at this rehab facility where he is kind of in a, in an abusive relationship with Dr. Veringer, the uh, Henry Gibson, Henry Gibson, who has been on my mind a lot lately because we've been watching a lot of Charlotte's web in my house. So it's funny because who's Wilbur. So okay. I hear his voice as Wilbur and then I'm watching this movie and he's like slapping Roger Wade oh. in front of all yeah. his friends on the beach trying well, to and, get, and him, the- get his money. Yeah, right. And he's he's there, right? So that the wife has the alibi or that Yes. I always I... find the first time I watch a mystery, it's and this was what also reminded me of the Big Lebowski. So I remember watching the Big Lebowski and just feeling like, I don't know what the hell just happened. I loved it, but I have no idea what just happened. Yeah. I, I mean, I I don't know if it was also his presence there was also th- to get Wade to like gets so drunk that maybe he does kill him. So I don't know, like if she wanted him mm. to get pushed over the edge. Oh, oh when he shows up at the party, yeah. when uh, right. the doctor oh, shows oh, up at the party. Oh, were you talking about at the rehab facility? Oh, I just meant why he was at the rehab facility. Oh, yeah. oh, 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 yeah. So he was there. Well, that's a good question because was, was it her idea for him to be there? Because- And they the, were going to pay, they were paying the doctors- to say that he had been there for for an alibi. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I th- if I remember correctly. It's, yeah. It's very layered as a, an Altman movie, an Altman movie tends to be. Uh, right. But I, 
I, I mean, I remember by the end of the movie, it made I, like I'm having a little trouble recalling it right now, and I didn't really take notes as much on the plot. But uh, I, I, I feel I feel like it made sense. It like kind of was all tied up nicely. Like I felt at the end that I was like, okay, I understand now. <laughs> well, the one thing that I just haven't taken the time for myself to piece together mentally, so. At the end, we talked about Eileen driving away from the building, and that building is where Marty Augustine has his operation, where the money that uh, was owed to him from Lennox just magically appears as he's trying to intimidate Marlowe. And then the money appears, and he's like, all right, you are free to leave. And then that's when (laughs) Marlowe sees her going. So it's like, why did she give that money back? That's one thing I didn't understand. Because she could have just gone down to Mexico and disappeared and been with Lennox. Right. Then just yeah, with a bunch I, of money. Um, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I would need to watch it again. Oh, by the way, how great is Mark Rydell as Marty Augustine? Oh my God, he's so good. He's so good. <laughs> He he performs that role just really really well. Like you believe oh, that he's this just like little crime boss, and he's like crazy. Yeah, when they all I just like it. strip down, it's so good. Yeah, yeah. Well, because it's like uh, he's like calling the bluff, you know. Yeah. Um, I think he went on to be like more of a director. Oh yeah, Mark Rydell. Yeah, I think I want to say he directed. Yeah, on Golden Pond. He directed oh, interesting. On Golden Pond. He directed The Rose. He oh, directed okay. uh, For the Boys, also with Bette Midler. For the Boys. And the aforementioned James Caan. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so, Dan, before we move on to talking about the future of The Long Goodbye, uh, well, I guess I should probably talk about there was a long goodbye episodic remake that was um was it china i i don't remember exactly which country of of origin it is but it is something that is i think set in the 50s uh here's a little synopsis on imdb this is from 2014 in this unauthorized adaptation of the novel the long goodbye by raymond chandler set in tokyo during the 50s Tamatsu is suspected of murdering his actress wife, Shizuka Harada. He flees to Taiwan and commits suicide. Okay, so it's just names are changed and, and things are adapted to to fit the um, that culture. Um, yeah. So yeah. that's the only thing. I know that there was also some other adaptations of the book that have been on like television serials. But nothing that I think there was a show called Climax that that did a version of it. But yeah, I, I don't know. There really hasn't been much aside from this this 2014 TV miniseries. Um, I know that I read somewhere it might have been the IMDb trivia that Elliot Gould had written a concept for a a new Philip Marlowe story, which is interesting and. and I'd love to talk to you about this um, quite a bit, but the Philip Marlowe character, it is a very specific 
Raymond Chandler character. And I believe that all of, and there have only been like maybe seven of these like pulpy novels that star this character or that feature this character, maybe some, some short stories. And I think that the last one um, was written partially and then finished by somebody else. That one um, was also adapted into a film. And But, like, what would you think about, I don't know, re-energizing a character that somebody else had built up for such a long time? Like, at one point, does, like, a character become open to new people developing new stories for that character. Like a James Bond. Like a James Bond. Yes. I think that's the only example I can think of. Yeah. I I mean, I'm sure that, that, I mean, there are others in other ways. Like if you think about, I mean, this is not at all the same level of example, but just to bring up a recent example, how, uh, you know, major league three was not at all written by the writer of major league one or two. So it was some, sure. I, I understand what you're saying. It's yeah. not the same, but um, so I, I was thinking about it and I, it would, I, I think a lot would depend on the Chandler estate, same author, sure. Chandler, but I don't see why you couldn't have new Philip Marlowe stories as long as they were faithful to your uh-huh. Now, what what's the impetus of that? Well, I mean, I think with James, to what exactly? Well, I would say faithful to the the to the history of the character. No, I mean, I like don't know the if you're going like, like core principles because yeah, I think that yeah. Elliot Gould really strays kind of far from like Bogart's representation. I think Altman's film in the world of Philip Marlowe is an outlier. I don't, uh, I don't. Yeah. I, I, if I was doing, because how do you, what are you going to, to like, what, what are you going to do? Like Seth Rogen is Philip Marlowe. And then, cause like no one other than Altman is Altman. And right. so you're not going to remake and like an Altman, nobody's going to, you're not going to remake the player. It's like, we were talking about with Mel Brooks. Starring Susan like, Sarandon. Well, featuring Susan Sarandon. <laughs> And everybody, uh, <laughs> Malcolm McDowell and Andy McDowell in the same scene. Uh, My mind is blown. They make a big deal out of that in the movie. I know. Um, <laughs> and but oh, I love the player. But like Altman's, who, what are you going to remake Nashville? No, you might. Uh, I mean, yeah, like there was a TV series called Nashville, but it had nothing to do with Very that different. movie. I well, yeah, yeah and I think that uh, Nashville is to. Robert Altman the same way that like Blazing Saddles is to Mel Brooks where it's like oh. it is so very much tied to the the creator. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, I would even I yeah, I would say like young Nashville is kind of I would well, say many I, you know, I'm just I was just kind of yeah. calling it back to to Mel no. Brooks, but like it's that type of situation. I mean, yeah, so you're not going to whereas you're not going to remake the long goodbye. You are going to readapt the long goodbye and you're going to readapt Marlowe. And uh, I, I I mean, I don't know. I'd be interested to see if you, I mean, you've got some great filmmakers out there and I would, I mean, Ryan Johnson nailed noir with brick. Yeah. I, 
I can't think of another recent, like really solid example of contemporary noir. Yeah. Other than uh, Brick. That's a good question. I don't know. I mean, even I mean, we talked about Blade Runner before. Blade Runner twenty forty nine isn't yes. even isn't really uh, noir. It's it's the noir light. Yes. Yeah. No. The original. No. I mean, Blade Runner. It, um. The OG is yeah is well, very much noir in that futuristic context. I mean, like you were saying with Ryan Johnson and Brick, you know, that is a well at the time contemporary like. I don't know how how old he was supposed to be, but like he's, he's in high school. High school, yeah, high school version of high school noir, you know. Yeah. It, so I mean, I yeah, I don't and so I don't quite know. Would you try to like make would you try to reinvent noir for the 21st century? Would you just be faithful and keep it set in the the early 1950s and do really like stylistic period, like a good, like an LA confidential type. Oh, I'll tell you. Well, did you see motherless Brooklyn? Not yet. It's very good. Uh-huh. Edward Norton. Excellent. I am not drawn to, you know, 1950s, like mob kind of noir movies so much. But that one did it for me. I, I was really captivated by it. It was very good. Um, oh, awesome. I'm going to check that out as soon as yeah. I can. It, you know, it just kind of like flew by and didn't really catch many people's attention. But it's, it's, I don't know. I found it really enjoyable. And I'm not into that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, I don't know. I think that the like 40s and 50s noir piece, it, it got a little tired for me. And when you have a character like Philip Marlowe, they're like Robert Altman showed what you can do with this character in a different era. And I think that that's pretty fascinating. I mean, and, and so also, is there anything? Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, saying also just like having it not be like a cleaned up private eye, you know, it's somebody who he might even say like, fuck the pigs when talking about the cops. Like he's. And that's. That's yeah. kind of where I was going before with, yeah. with Altman's purpose in passing is by saying like, look, you might think of this character as this, but this character is much more in real life. This character would be much more this guy who I'm yeah. showing you. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a guy who has got like a kind of crappy apartment. Uh, yeah. I don't the, know. Philip, the Philip Marlowe of 1973 is not a stiff. And maybe I think, I feel like that's where the necktie comes in is because it's kind of like, it's his one, it's just like, hey, if I do this, I'm, that's, that's enough. I'm. Well, yeah, he's on the clock. I'm professional. Yeah. As soon as he puts it on, he's doing his job and he keeps it on the entire time. So John, I'm curious. um, Let's say you were just like in charge of recasting and regardless of when it was being set, okay, who do you see? Who do you see well, as the modern day Marlowe? Who I see as the modern day Marlowe? This, this is good. Uh, well, Other first than Oscar all, Isaac, it wouldn't be Oscar Isaac. Um, <laughs> so, by the way, who doesn't love Oscar Isaac? I am so excited I, for Dune. <laughs> uh, I I might even try to read that book. Oh, <laughs> good luck! The movie because so I got excited. I, 
I don't know if we've, well, we've talked about him a lot on this podcast before, but uh, just talking about directors, clearly the the person who rules over the private eye genre right now is Shane Black. And mm. I, what he did with the nice guys is awesome. And I feel like the nice guys, I know we talked about the nice guys not on the podcast a, a bunch of times, but I think that that's a really fun private eye 1970s movie that where like Philip Marlowe would kind of be a like if you saw Elliot Gould in 1973 walking in the background of the nice guys it'd be like that makes sense like yes. they exist in the yes. same world together and they're Agreed. they're just he just didn't get that job they got that job and right the one actor that I thought of immediately as being somebody who could essentially be the now version of 1973 Elliot Gould is Ben Sinclair. Are you familiar with Ben Sinclair? Ben Sinclair is the, by the way, it sounds like I'm saying Ben Sinclair. No, it's Ben as in Benjamin Sinclair. Uh, he does the show High oh, Maintenance. Yeah. Yes. He's, he's awesome. And I, I really love that. I mean, high maintenance is his show, but since it has started, he has shown more and more of what he is capable of as an actor and a director. And yes, his character on high maintenance is this weed dealer, stoner guy, but he does have this intelligence to him. He knows things about the world. And he, he listens. That, He's a listener yeah, on that show. Yeah, he is a collector of all these personalities that he encounters. And when that show gets into more of his personal life, you get to see more of who he really is. And I think that the way that Ben plays that role reminds me a lot of how Elliot Gould plays Marlowe. And not to say that he is a detective on his show at all, but like. I could see him doing what Elliot Gould does. Very much the Elliot Gould. So I had a few other remake actor and director pairings that I thought would be really good. So that would be my Ben Sinclair and Shane Black pairing. Just because I just, I, I trust Shane Black. He finds the humor in things in the way that like this movie had a lot of funny moments in a movie that isn't a funny movie. And another pairing that we kind of talked about, well, we talked about one half of this, but I know that Ryan Johnson has already done a noir movie and he kind of goes like, all right, check done that onto the next genre. But Ryan Johnson (laughs) with Lakeith Stanfield would be a really cool. Oh, how good would Lakeith Stanfield be as a Marlowe? Oh, he'd be fantastic. He'd be so good. And I know that you know they work together, knives uh-huh. out, and he's great. Uh, yeah. The other pairing, the one other pairing that I have, and I know you're going to be excited about at least half of this: director Greta Gerwig, Marlowe, Laurie Metcalf. How amazing! I'm excited about both apps, though. I really, I swear, you were going to go like Shayors Ronan. <laughs> oh, Sarah Ronan? No. Yeah, I, yeah. Lori yeah. Metcalf. Oh my God, Lori Metcalf as how Marlo. excited I mean, would you be to see Lori Metcalf playing a 
burnt out private eye. I can picture it. I can close my eyes and picture it. <laughs> She's so good, and the material would just suit her so well. Yeah, so. and the and the performance that she does have in Lady Bird, like, was just like, oh, of course it would be with Greta Gerwig, who is showing that she can bounce from genre to genre and isn't staying pigeonholed in the like the the New York indie movie type of no. I mean, and, and speaking of Greta Gerwig as a filmmaker, it just it, it actually makes me think of an actor who I didn't have on my list, but Bob Odenkirk. I knew you were going to say Bob Odenkirk. Marlo. My little well, woman. I- my little woman. <laughs> my little women. Oh, you've grown. My little women. <laughs> so I know. And it's, there I am sitting would be the- great. I swear to God, I'm, the, I'm like the only one in the theater who was like, oh, my God, holy shit, it's Bob Odinger. Uh Another like private eye noir it's not a movie, but a TV series that I want to mention really quick is Bored to Death. Uh, the oh, Jason yeah. Schwartzman show with um, Zach Galifianakis and Ted Danson. That is a that was a great show. It was I always meant to go back seasons. to it. I, I think I watched like the first season and then I didn't have HBO when the second season yeah, came so, on. So, so what's never. interesting about that show is it's about a novelist who had one successful novel who is stuck in, you know, with writer's block for his next novel and starts advertising himself on Craigslist because that was a thing at the time as a, an unlicensed private detective for hire. And each episode is a different case, but he's also trying to put his life together and figure out what he's going to do with his life and his relationships. And uh, Jason Schwartzman, I've always been such a huge fan of, and he's so he's so good. But it's that is an interesting way to take like mm-hmm. a Philip Marlowe type of thing and turn it on its side a little bit, where it's like this is somebody who, let's say, for the sake of argument, that like. Schwartzman's character is a big fan of Philip Marlowe, you know, noir, pulpy novels, and mm-hmm. is basing his persona off of that. So that's, you know, that's what that show did, essentially. I don't know if they called out a specific fictional private detective he was modeling stuff off of. I don't think, I mean, I don't know, it's, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but... I don't know. You know, you know who I was thinking I wouldn't mind seeing play a, play Marlowe or play like a Marlowe type character and just more in the traditional casting vein, Vigo Mortensen. Uh really. You know what I'm thinking? So I'm thinking of um a couple of things. And first I think back to uh, a history of violence, uh, which is a movie that I'm not crazy about the movie, but I thought he was fantastic in it. And I think about him in Green Book. And Whereas um, I, I know, I mean, I mean yeah, yeah, Green Book, I know. So you will, anyway. No, 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 no. I, I, you know, I'm not, I don't necessarily love the movie, but I saw a Viggo Mortensen in that that I had not seen before. And I was like, there is potential with this Viggo Mortensen. <laughs> not that there uh, wasn't with Arag- the Aragorn right. version, <laughs> the Viggo I, I Mortensen of... I did not love him in A History of Violence. I 
remembered seeing it one time when it first came out. So maybe I need to revisit it. Was he also in Eastern Promises? Yes, which I haven't seen. Which I didn't love him in either. I don't know. I think that I just had this view of who Viggo Mortensen was, you know, Lord of the Rings aside. And it was, it's essentially like those movies and Green Book for me. And I'm just kind of like, huh, all right. I mean, I watched Green Book on a plane and I feel like I wouldn't dislike it as much if it wasn't an Academy Award winner, if it was just sure. like Green Book. Green Book was no better a film than School Ties and School Ties was not nominated for a single Academy Award. School Ties, greatest movie of our generation. I'm just kind of like, you know, movies alone. that hello movies that might fall under the same umbrella. But I enjoyed Viggo, and I saw it on a plane, so who knows? But <laughs> I liked Viggo Mortensen in it, and I—it was an interesting like, choice. Yeah, how they how I, they got to him isn't it would be you know interesting to find out. But anyway, I—I I mean, I guess I don't care enough about the movie to to find out. I it was you know a couple two talented actors, and they were doing you know whatever. <laughs> We're not here to talk about Green Book. No. No, but uh, <laughs> I just have one. one um, I have one, just one thing to add. Please. About The Long Goodbye. And that is, I find it interesting that this movie comes out within two years, within maybe a year and a half of Chinatown. Oh, right. Chinatown. I thought there was a lot in this that reminded me of Chinatown. Uh-huh. There was just, well, and I can't, I can't, like, the, yes, the, yes, Los Angeles, but I don't know. There was like a vibe to it that really made me think of Chinatown so much to say that I'm like, are they, is he ripping off Chinatown? And then I was like, no, this came out before Chinatown. Right. Huh. So it's interesting. interesting. I'd be, I'd be interested and it's a shame. I, I watched Chinatown again not too long ago, and uh, I'm not exactly ready to go back to it quite yet. But I, I, I guess there was just something about a, a, like a tone to it. Maybe Chinatown does have that very 70s vibe, even though it's set in the 40s. Right. Yeah. Or early 50s or whatever. But yeah. Just throwing that out. Just throwing that out there. Sure. No, very interesting. Um, did you have any other ideas about bringing back the the long goodbye? I mean, I was thinking kind of like you were thinking, like what do you, what like what if you do a you know what if you try to build this character into like your next I don't know like a James Bond or a, a Jack Ryan? Uh, well, yeah, I mean it, that's it's it essentially already has been. It's just been on hold yeah, for a but, long time like but, but what if you what if you bring it back and and i maybe not not try to do something like altman did with it but maybe uh-huh. just try to do like detective noir really well yeah and maybe just try to like do it like a faithful adaptation and who and and big picture like i think an anthology series could be cool i think an anthology series where you end up having different you've got like maybe some dashiell hammett Mm. characters crossing paths with some raymond chandler characters and you have like a noir 
universe verse yes yes <laughs> uh the noir avengers a lot of cigarettes being smoked. oh my god everyone's just like blowing the smoke out of their face uh so avengers headquarters two trucks pull up one of them is full of cigarettes the other whiskey <laughs> yeah uh so i don't know uh it's i oh, i i had something and then i lost it but yeah. uh it's pretty interesting we we do have the, the Marlowe character. And I think that because there were only a certain number of books written for that character, unlike, you know, Ian Fleming wrote way more. And of course, it's kind of going beyond those books. Uh, it's just not as robust of a, uh, I don't know, a, a character story storyline, but uh, I don't know. I think that there's there's a lot that can be done. It's a beloved character. It would be cool to see whether it's this movie or one of the other Marlowe movies kind of come back again. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I'd want to see one set present day, just because I think that it gets complicated once you have technology. But yeah. I no. yeah I, I think back. that doing it in the 70s is is perfect. Uh one thing I'm also wondering talking uh, going back to Shane Black a little bit. I haven't I wasn't able to find it anywhere but The Long Kiss Goodnight was is that a reference to The Long Goodbye? Oh, almost definitely. Well, almost. I I looked it up I couldn't find anything saying that but it's just like why else would you call it that? Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. farewell, my lovely, and like I'm sure if you go through your noir titles, yeah, I mean, long kiss, good night. It's just oh, it all... that's right. What I was what I was also going to say is that like talking about detective anthologies, we do have True Detective, of course, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. yeah, and then somebody who was uh, greatly impacted by the film of The Long Goodbye, and then subsequently the novel was Michael Connelly who wrote the Bosch, who created the character of Harry Bosch, the, which has the uh, Amazon series. I think the latest season mm-hmm. just came out. Uh, I, Dan, have you ever watched Bosch? I've not watched it. It's been recommended to me, and I do like Titus Welliver, So, Titus Welliver is great. Bosch. Um, the first few seasons are, are really strong. I kind of fell off a little bit, but I'm curious to see if the, the new season's strong. But it is a... You know, it's a very Marlowe-y character. I mean, he is a cop. He is a detective, but he's pretty, I don't know, grizzled and over it. And he goes outside of the, you know, Mm -hmm. of the law a little bit when he needs to do what he needs to do. He would have been... Man, I you know who would have been a good Marlowe, and actually now I would I would cast him more as uh, who is the writer in, in Long Goodbye as, as Wade, uh, uh-huh. Tom Barron, our friend Tom Barringer, Tom from Major Barringer. League, Tom Barringer, and I'm pretty sure Tom Barringer did a couple of like detective movies. Like I want to say he did one with Ridley Probably. Scott called Someone Who'll Watch Over Me. I've never huh. seen it, but uh, I don't know. I might have to check. Check that one. I did one in the early '90s called Shattered. Huh. Okay. Um, yeah, I, which I I don't. I, it's been a long time since I've seen that. But yeah, Tom I mean, Berenger. Tom Bar- Sure, Tom Berenger. Get him in there. Why not? Why not? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, we could we could go all day talking about 
detective anthologies and movies and stuff like that. I uh, would be more than happy to see a good old school detective, like just a faithful, like, hey, we're going to do 1950s, but we're going to do it real, like mad men. Oh, I, I mean, you should watch Motherless Brooklyn. That's my oh, recommendation. Yes. Uh, okay. It's, uh, he did a Ed Norton did a great job. Um, it, it's really engaging. The performance Bobby Cannavale is in it. Alec Baldwin is in it. Um, there's just a lot of really great performances. What? Well, I think the this the I think New York City will not give you a, a permit to film unless you cast Bobby Cannavale. <laughs> He's I'm pretty awesome. sure if you're filming if you're filming within the five boroughs, He's got to be in it, and your film or television series will be better for it because he's yeah, great. Yeah, absolutely. Did you did you watch Vinyl? The, I was just going to ask you if you watched. I I did watch Vinyl. It's great. I I did not watch the entirety of this. Is there only one season? I think so. Is that it true? Was, I, I think I watched if, like. Oh wait, maybe I did. Did I watch the entire? Wait, I watched. I don't think it was that I long. Say, I, maybe I did watch the entire he, first season. It was kind of jarring to see him as this, like, was he like a record producer or something like yeah. that? I don't know. Yeah, he's a re- record was, label exec. Yeah. It, it was kind of weird seeing him as being like the main character. I love seeing him as, you know, a secondary character. I think that that's when he's at his strongest. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't think that I, I really bought him as like the, the lead of, of the show, but it was a fun show. It was yeah, very, I, very bizarre. At a, at a certain point, I feel like I was watching an episode and there was just so much cocaine going on that I was just like, right. yeah, yeah. I don't want to yeah. watch this. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Vinyl. Sure. It's fun. It's weird. Bobby Cannavale though. Olivia, anyway. Olivia Wilde. She's great. Mick yep. Jagger's son is in it. He's good. Wasn't Mick Jagger producer? I oh yeah, I, oh yeah, and Martin Scorsese like was involved. I think at least with the pilot. Well, of course, I think that well, was the it, draw. If if the Rolling Stones, if any of the Rolling Stones are involved, Martin Scorsese is not far behind. Yeah, <laughs> I think he's the one who did their bit for the uh, the what, the stay at home concert because the oh, Rolling really? Stones, the Rolling Stones were on that, and it was funny because. They had four, there were like four, and it was, it was, Mix was the first one on, and it was like Keith's cam, Ronnie's cam, and it, Mix was the only one on at first, and he started doing, you can't always get what you want, and I was like, are the, are, are they each going to come in at a specific point, or are like their grandkids trying to figure out, like, to get their grandkids <laughs> going, or like, what is and it, it turned out to be the former where like you know they each kind of came in right. with their own part and it was yeah. like and Charlie Watts was not Charlie Watts was sitting there with dr- with drumsticks and a couple of like kit cases and he was just like playing uh-huh. in the air. Ronnie Wood was playing as though he was doing an arena show oh and God. he was like jumping up and out. It was I, I I was trying to explain to Chloe sitting there like why she should not be whining and saying is mm. it over yet. I was like, it's the Rolling Stones. Uh, so anyway. So today my yeah. daughter, Maggie, had to, uh, she really wanted to watch Baby Beluga on YouTube, but she had to wait for me to first watch a breakdown of all of the different uh, portrayals of Philip Marlowe. And I just had to tell her, 
She and she was very patient, all things considered. But there were a couple times when I said, "This one's for me. The next one is for you. I promise." So uh, this one's for me. I was like, I just, I was like, it's almost over, which was a lie. I and I was like, I just, we just, I'm, we're going to watch this really quick, and then the rest of TV for today is is you. I promise. So yeah. that's how that's how yeah. we had to navigate that. We very rarely uh, put things on the TV that aren't like kids stuff. But I was like, she can sit through, um, you know, a five minute Philip Marlowe breakdown. When they got to Elliot Gould, was she like, what? <laughs> yeah, she's like, <laughs> why does that guy look like all of our like old family photos? <laughs> <laughs> Looks like Uncle Joe circa 1968. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, Dan, why don't we talk about what we're going to do for our next episode? All right. No well, one's going to see next... this coming. Unless no, you read the description no. of the episode. From out of left field comes 1987's Ishtar. Ishtar. We're doing it, baby. We're going I... there. Okay. We're going there. Dan, I I have to say, we're what like sixty episodes into this podcast. I love yes. that like there's a chunk of four that is seconds. Major League, the long goodbye, Ishtar. What I love it. Yet they're kind of all connecting for me. So, Ooh. well, I shouldn't say they're kind of all. They're not kind of all connecting for me. But I have with. It's interesting that long goodbye and Ishtar came up almost concurrently. I added them to our list at the same time. So there you go. Yes. Anyway, next episode, we'll talk more about all of the connections I'm making between the long goodbye and Ishtar. Dustin Hoffman. Was it Warren Beatty? Dustin Hoffman, Warren Beatty, uh, written and directed by Elaine Elaine Mace, starring uh, Isabella Johnny, Warren Beatty's, Girlfriend of the right of 1987. Du jour. Uh, oh, Charles Gro- Charles Grodin pops up. Oh, awesome! Excited. Oh yeah, that. we're gonna get our Grodon. Uh, oh, so yeah, so Ishtar. I'm excited, John. It's gonna be fun. And uh, I think that we're gonna be focusing on the director's cut because that's what we've got available to us. So if anyone is uh, looking to follow along, if you have the option between the theatrical release and the director's cut, go for the director's cut. Or if you watch the theatrical version, we're interested. To, uh, we could we could compare contrast. Yeah, well, also write to us ruinedchildhoodspot at gmail.com if you are an Ishtar head and have uh, something you want to add. If you have anything you want to say about the long goodbye, seconds, major league, or any other movie that we've talked about, hit us up. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, um, uh, you know, hope everyone is staying safe, keeping their distance, and with that, we say. Good journey. And be well. Good journey and be well. And good journey.